0: Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight, O oh Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Amen. So today is the first Sunday after Trinity, and we're going to begin uh, what we sometimes call the long green season. Basically half of the year in which our focus shifts from following in the footsteps of our Lord's earthly life into growing in our faith. So uh, the kind of the green for growth sort of thing. We'll see that the readings are going to become a lot more topical and uh, a lot less seasonal. There's not any major seasons coming up for us to follow along for the rest of the year, uh, the rest of the church year anyway. It's pretty much all topical. We're going to focus on growing in virtue and battling vice, all with the help of our Lord Jesus. So in our colic for the day, we addressed God as the strength of all those who put their trust in him. We uh, recognize the weakness of our mortal nature and the fact that we can do no good thing without God. Therefore, we prayed that he would help us by giving us his grace so that we can please him by keeping his commandments both in will. So that's our intentions. And indeed, that's what we're actually doing. And this prayer for Trinity One really sums up those goals we have for this green season. It sums up our goals for growth during Trinity Tide. So um, Anglican theologian David Phillips had some lectures to the Prayer Book Society on the rationale of the Trinity season lectionary, this traditional set of epistles and gospels that we read at communion. And he identifies a three-stage growth that um, he kind of brings out from some 6th century Christian philosophy, especially kind of in the area of Greece. And so what we have is, we begin with purgation of sin. We're going to deal with those sin issues. Then we're going to progress to illumination by the Holy Spirit, asking for the Holy Ghost to shine his light on us and teach us the word. And then we're going to move further on and further in, into union with Christ. So over the next few months, our Trinity Tide readings will take us through that three stages of growth in virtue. But today we're going to set the stage by laying a foundation in love. So in today's gospel, we see the rich man, traditionally named Dives, um, failing to love his poor neighbor, Lazarus. And then in our epistle, St. John expounds on what it means to love our brother and to love our neighbor. Now, sometimes we use this word love rather sloppily in our culture. We often use it so indiscriminately that it kind of loses um, its significance. After all, when I say that I love my wife, I'm talking about something quite different from when I say that I love pizza. It's not the same thing. I hope it's not the same thing. That'd be really weird. Our English word love is so broad the way we use it that we can sometimes rather confused one of the last conversations I had with my late uncle Claudio was how important it is to properly define love especially if we're supposed to be preaching the gospel so can we truly speak about the love between newlyweds in the same way that we speak about the love we should have for our fellow man is that the same thing or how about the love that God has for us and the love we're supposed to have for him When our epistle says God is love in verse 8, is St. John speaking about the same thing as the Beatles in their famous song, All You Need Is Love? And when you talk to some people, they assume it is the same thing. But we're going to see that it's not. In the scriptures, we have three primary words in Greek that get translated into English as love. So on the one hand, we have the word eros, which refers to a romantic or a sexual love. In fact, Cupid, the Roman god of love, is known as eros in Greek. Second, we have the word phileo, which is often referred to as brotherly love. Uh, The city Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, comes from this word in Greek, phileo. This is the affection that we have for friends or family. Thayer's lexicon points out that it is an emotional sort of love. It is essentially a feeling. And then finally, we have agape or agape, which is an unconditional love. And this sort of love is essentially a choice, and it's treated in scripture as a higher form of love than the other two. In fact, sometimes the King James Version will use the word charity to translate agape, most famously in 1 Corinthians 13. And again, hearkening back to a broader use of the word charity than we typically use it today so throughout our epistle reading this third love agape is what we're talking about God's love is not just a feeling it's not a romantic love rather it's an unconditional it's a choice and it's rooted in God's own nature The fact that love flows from God's nature is of utmost importance to our understanding of the duty that we have to love God and the duty we have to love our neighbor. Last week, of course, was Trinity Sunday when we remembered that we worship three persons who are one God. We really focus on that doctrine of the Trinity. So we don't have three gods. We don't have one person who's acting in three different roles. We have one God who is three persons, eternally exists as three persons. Each person is God, not nearly part of God. Each person is distinct. The father is not the son. The son is not the spirit. And the spirit is not the father. Nevertheless, we have one God, not three. The unity of these three persons is such that Jesus can accurately say, I and the father are one even while remaining a distinct person from the Father. This is certainly confusing. Again, we talked about this last week. But arithmetic does not limit our Lord. It's often been said that we can't comprehend the Trinity, but we can apprehend the Trinity. That is, we're not going to fully understand the doctrine, but we can affirm what Scripture tells us about it and what we see in the creeds. One of my favorite aspects of Trinitarian doctrine, something we did touch upon last week, is the fact that it means that God is essentially relational. That is, God has always loved. The Father has always loved the Son. The Son has always loved the Father. And St. Augustine teaches us that the Spirit has always been that personal bond of love between the Father and the Son. This is in part what St. John means when he says God is love. God didn't have to create us to have someone to love. He always loved. He didn't have to create love. He has always been love. Rather, the love that God has for us is an overflow of who he is in his nature. As St. John points out at the beginning of our epistle today, this has profound implications for how we're supposed to treat one another. So let's look at verses 7 and 8 in our epistle. Uh, John, 1 John 4, verses 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love... Does not know God because God is love. So, in these two verses, that word agape or one of its derivatives is used seven times in two verses. So, St. John addresses us as beloved, that is, those who are loved. Okay, loved by whom? Well, by God, first and foremost, but also by the apostle, because the apostle John is showing that same love of God for us, for his audience. Because we are then beloved, we are commanded to love one another. Only those who are loved can love. Why? Well, because as the epistle says, love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So without being reborn, without being regenerated by the Holy Spirit, we cannot love with supernatural agape love. But when we are born of God, we will naturally know God and we will naturally love our brothers and sisters with the same kind of love that God loves us. And if God's love in us does not bear fruit in the form of loving each other, that lack of proof or that lack of fruit is proof that we don't really know God. Why is that? Well, because God is love. St. John goes on then to show us how we know that God does indeed love us. Let's pick up in verses 9 and 10. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So the ultimate demonstration of God's love was the father's willingness to send the son and the son's willingness to be sent all for the purpose of becoming a bloody sacrifice for our propitiation. That word propitiation um, connotes atonement. And in the Old Testament, we see that atonement sacrifices restored the relationship between God and his people because the people were prone to stray from him through sin. I'm reminded especially of the Day of Atonement, a particular uh, uh, fast day in the Old Testament for where, where atonement is the focus. And the Day of Atonement has two goats for sacrifice. So the first goat was literally sacrificed. It was killed in the temple um, as a sin offering. And Leviticus 16 tells us that the blood of this first goat was to purify the temple and to purify the people from the uncleanness of the people's sins. Their sins not only defiled them, but it defiled God's house also. Hebrews 9 reminds us that under the law... Almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's Hebrews 9.22. Really, the book of Hebrews is a long exposition on the Day of Atonement and how that applies in a New Covenant context. Um, Worth a study in the future. But there's also a second goat on the Day of Atonement, and that's the scapegoat who's exiled into the wilderness after the priest confesses the iniquities, the sins, and the transgressions of the people onto the goat, lays them upon his head, and then sends him out into the wilderness. Our Lord Jesus fulfills both of these goats. He sheds his blood on the cross to purify us from our sins, and he takes our sins upon himself as he's exiled to the grave. Only to rise again three days later as proof that he's greater than death, that he's greater than the world, the flesh, and the devil, that he's able to atone for our sins. Make no mistake, this is an act of love on Jesus' part and on the Father's part. A traditional reading among uh, Judaism, at least today, I'm not quite sure how old this tradition goes. It might have even been um, as as old as the New Testament times. But a traditional reading uh, on the Day of Atonement is the binding of Isaac from Genesis chapter 22, in which Abraham shows his love for God by being willing to sacrifice his beloved son Isaac. And Isaac shows his love for Abraham and for God by being willing to be sacrificed. Isaac's not a little child. Abraham's an old man. Isaac could have gotten off that altar anytime he wanted to. That's why he asked asked to be bound. Um, Abraham could not take the, the young man. And finally, we see that God shows his love for Abraham and for Isaac by providing a ram to be sacrificed in their place. Abraham here is a type of the father. Isaac and the ram are both types of our Lord Jesus. Let's continue in our epistle, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So when we are loved by God, that love bears fruit in our love for each other. His love in us allows others to see God working in us. And indeed, our love for each other is proof that God lives in us and has loved us with that perfect love of his son. Again, the love used in this passage is the word agape, that divine love that isn't, or that is a choice. It's not just a feeling. We don't love each other because we always feel like it. We know each other. That's not the case. (laughs) We all know how we can get on each other's nerves and hurt each other sometimes very deeply. But rather we love each other because we have been empowered by God's love to choose to love each other. This is a choice that we exercise every day. And when we fail to love each other, and we all do, what does God do? He calls us to repent. He calls us to try again, secure in his love for us. Confident that he both calls us and keeps us in his love. Or as the apostle puts it in Hebrews chapter 12, Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. The amazing thing about God's agape love is that it sanctifies then the often mixed motives of those other two loves in the New Testament. So our emotional affection for our friends and family from Phileo becomes true Christian brotherhood. And we can sing out with the words of the psalmist in Psalm 133. Behold how good and a joyful thing it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. For there the Lord promised his blessing and life forevermore. That's not just me and the guys going out to get some drinks, right? There's something deeper there. There's true Christian brotherhood. The blood of Christ that binds us as his family, as spiritual brothers and sisters, becomes the thickest blood of all. And then God's agape love also takes that eros found in Christian marriage, that fiery love that is so powerful that sometimes it requires a name and a birth certificate nine months later. God takes that eros and his agape makes it into a picture of Christ in the church. Ever since the fall, the one flesh unity of man and wife has been perverted into a selfish domination or a selfish rebellion. But St. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5 that a Christian husband loves his wife with the same sacrificial, sanctifying love that Christ has for the church. That a Christian husband should love his wife as if she were his very own body, being willing to lay aside his life for her. And he also tells us in that same chapter that a Christian wife should should submit to her husband similar to how the church submits to Christ, not a submission of distrust and of fear, but a submission that is born of being loved and loving in return. This is the kind of love that is big enough to change the world. And indeed, it has changed the world, bringing the good news of Jesus Christ to all corners of the globe. And with that gospel comes all the societal benefits. The pagans don't have hospitals, education, orphanages, um, equal voting rights. That doesn't happen. That comes because we see each other as, as image bearers of God when we're in Christ. That comes with the gospel. And whenever our society tries to have the benefits of Christianity without the faith, it ends up being a mockery and a poor shadow of true Christian society. But it's also a love that is small enough to work miracles in an individual, in a family, or in a parish. In verse 19 of our epistle, St. John says, we love because he first loved us. So my charge to you this first Sunday of Trinity, this first Sunday of our growing time this church year, beloved in Christ, go love your God, love your neighbor, just as you have been loved. And we say this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost.